Uh, I'm going to jump right into it because we had a lot of announcements this morning, but we're going into the Word of God right now. Uh, we have been in a series on worship, and it's called The Reset, Rediscovering Worship. Um, when, in my preparation this week, I was thinking about what is worship, just to kind of give us a, a refresh on what it is. And two words came to mind when I just asked the Holy Spirit, what is worship? But there's also like in history, this is actually how worship was defined. It's from two words, worth-ship. Worth-ship. Kind of sounds like a lisp when you say it like that, worth-ship. Um, but when we talk about worth, assigning worth to someone, that is, can in a way lead to worship. Sometimes our worship leaders, William, Nick, or Tyler, they'll say, God, you're worthy. You're worthy. And when they're saying, God, you're worthy, they're saying, God, you are deserving of our respect, effort, and attention. God, you demonstrate qualities and abilities that merit recognition. And so we recognize you, God. We lift you up. We praise you. We honor you. So think about worship as worthship. Amen. Um, and so last week, we talked about five expressions of worship. And a book I used as a support last week, and I'm using it again as a support for this Sunday, it's uh, by a fellow named Gary Thomas, and it's called Sacred Pathways. And uh, Thomas talks about various activities that followers of Jesus do to express their love for God. Now, if you were away last Sunday, I, I, this is very much a two-part kind of series that I'm in right now, although it fits in the context of rediscovering worship in the entire series, but you, you have to go back and listen to last Sunday. Last Sunday, I talked about traditional worship uh, because some of you grew up in traditional older churches, and I talked about rituals and symbols and sacrifices, things commonly used in older churches. Um, I talked about sensory worship, and I explained why do we have bright shining lights and colors and motion graphics and music in our services. I talked about why historically the church incorporated things like paintings and statues and beautiful architecture and steeples into worship environments. It had an impact on the senses. Uh, I talked about enthusiast worship and how some Christians crave a supernatural form of worship. They love things like dreams and vision and prophecy and miracles and signs and wonders, and they love to dance and celebrate in worship before God. Uh, we went through five expressions last Sunday. The fourth one was contemplative worship. Some of you enjoy a very personal, intimate expression. Contemplative worship is less about doing things for God, and it's more about being with God, spending time in His presence, adoring Him, being adored by Him. And then lastly, some of you that are, that are a little bit more logical and a little bit more cerebral were really happy when I came to the last one, intellectual worship. Some people prefer to love God with their heads, and it's not as natural for them to love God with their hearts. They're thinkers more than they are feelers, and so their love for God is unleashed when they learn something new about God. Now, what's the difference between uh, this week and last week? All of those expressions that I talked about last Sunday, they are very much things that we do here in the context of our Sunday services. 
Um, there is form and structure to our services. Maybe not quite the same way as like a Catholic church or an Orthodox church, but there's like, we, we have traditions that we incorporate here at the Father's house. Our worship is highly sensory, you know, light and bright and colorful and sights and sounds, and there's even taste when we incorporate things like communion. Our worship is enthusiastic. Even a little bit this morning, it, we're, we're a Pentecostal church. There's an emphasis on the Holy Spirit's power and presence. I believe the Father's house is a contemplative church. Our use of songs and scriptures, it provides an invitation for you to meditate on God's goodness. Church should never just be information. It should be an invitation into a love experience with God. And then I hope you would agree that TFH Church is an intellectual body of believers, maybe not so much the song service, but when you come to the message that you go home feeling challenged and there's knowledge and, uh, you know, your understanding of God is expanded, there's an intellectual ascent that happens in our worship services. So we're changing it up this week, and I'm going to give you four more expressions of love for God. These ones happen mostly outside of the church, and maybe you'll think to yourself, is that really worship? We're so used to worship being something we do here on Sunday mornings, but worship is something we do, uh, you know, when we're outside and when we're out in the marketplace and in the world. And so let me pray really quickly, and we're going to jump in. God bless your church. Lord, they've already been blessed by this morning's announcements and songs, God. But Lord, I pray that you would just fill us up now with truth and understanding as we talk about four more expressions of worship. Help us to rediscover what this means in our everyday lives. And the whole church said, amen. amen. You ready? Okay, so you're going to like this next expression because it's summertime. And many of you have been vacationing, and you've been going to the cabin and the lake and outside in the beautiful weather. Uh, the next expression is naturalist worship. And what that is, is loving God outside, loving God outdoors. There's an expression of worship that seeks to leave the building and leave the padded chairs and enter into a new cathedral. It's God's cathedral. He built it, and that would be outside. Uh, maybe you can remember a time when you were outside, suddenly you couldn't help but whisper under your breath or say aloud, like, wow, God, look at what you created. Anyone? Is it just me? <laughs> Come on now. I remember times as a kid, we went to Banff quite often, and being in the mountains, you know, the crisp mountain air, my dad loved taking us on long hikes probably hurt our legs as little guys, but we'd go on these long hikes up to the summit. And at that point, I didn't understand that engaging God outside was an act of worship. But I remember staring at the mountains or the forest or the sunset and just being in awe and wonder and sometimes, wow, God. Whenever I see a sunrise, I tell my kids, that's God painting. And now they do that. Whenever they see that, they go, God is painting again. And I go, yeah, he is. Um, I remember my grandparents living on Vancouver Island when I was a kid. And we'd visit there every summer. And just sitting on the deck and watching tugboats and sailboats go by and whatnot. And the ocean, so big, so amazing. In high school, I lived in a town called Three Hills. And there's a reason why it's called Three Hills. And that's because there are only three hills in Three Hills. You know you've reached the town when you see those three little bumps. And one of my friends lived on the edge of Three Hills. And when we were in his backyard, the field stretched forever. 
forever. You could watch your dog run away for two weeks. It was amazing. <laughs> Unbelievable. Now, I don't know which setting you prefer, mountains, oceans, prairies, foothills, all of them are inspirational. They're amazing. Taking a look at the Bible, naturalist worship, the first story in the Bible, where were they? They're in a garden, the Garden of Eden. When God created a paradise for people, it wasn't a resort, a hotel, a palace, it was a garden. And we don't think about it at a glance because we're always inside, but many of the Old Testament and gospel illustrations are based on nature. We talk about the river of life. It seems nice when it's projected on a screen, but its power is overwhelming when you are standing next to a fast-flowing river. Green pastures. <laughs> Sounds like a postcard, right? Until you're out in the country. Uh, many of the Old Testament appearances of God, they happened outside. Uh, God met Hagar in the desert, Abraham on a mountain, Jacob at a river crossing, Moses at a burning bush. It was less common for God to meet anyone in, in a house or in the city. Jumping to the New Testament, Jesus sought out the beauty of creation. Early in his ministry, this is kind of cool, he moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. And when you look up Capernaum, it, it's actually right next to the sea. He wanted to live by the sea. And when he called some of his disciples to follow him, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee. Jesus taught in the countryside, probably pointing to images as he taught. I can point at that screen, but I can't point at the birds flying overhead, talking about God's care for them, or real flowers talking about their beauty. Uh, we announced baptism this morning at the Father's house, September 11th, don't forget. Baptism, we do it right here on the stage in a big tank, but historically, baptism happened outside, obviously. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, it was to crowds sitting on the green grass. Practically speaking, how is being outside helpful in worship expression? I believe that we see God more clearly when we're outside, and that is biblically based. Psalms 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Creation is like, it's like an evangelist. It declares who God is. Romans 1, verse 20, Paul says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities are clearly seen, being understood from what he has made. Isn't that amazing? Wow! And so the existence, wonder, worthiness of God are broadcast when we step outside and open our minds and our hearts to the truth. Secondly, being outside helps us visualize scriptural truth. This is why Jesus used it so often in analogies. God's beauty can be seen in colorful leaves. His love and His warmth can be seen in a sunrise. His power and might. Think about thunder and lightning and the oceans, you know, breaking upon the shore. Think about the storm we had last night. Come on now. Creation teaches us things about God's nature. Amen? Last thought, worshiping outside helps us to rest. I find for myself, I, it's my favorite thing to do is to go for walks every night. Last summer, I was averaging about 100 kilometers a month just walking around town on my Nike app. And it was a way to release stress. 
It was a way to decompress. And in the midst of a busy schedule, this is what Jesus did. He sought out quiet places to pray and to be replenished, and he taught his disciples to do the same thing. Very often you would see Jesus taking his disciples out in a boat. I'm waiting for Pastor Greg to take us out on this lake, you know? Um, But he would go off by himself, usually to a mountain to spend time with his father. There is an invitation to rest and to release your worries when you spend time with God outside. Amen? Amen? By a show of hands. How many of you would say, yeah, naturalist worship? Come on, I'm all about that. (laughs) Get me out and, yeah, like almost all of you. (laughs) Um, Okay, so moving on to the second one for this morning. This one, this one might seem a little different, but I want you to stay with me, okay? Our second expression of worship that I want to talk about is called ascetic worship. Now, a lot of us don't know what ascetic means. I had to look it up too, but it's loving God in simplicity and solitude. The word ascetic, it's not used a lot today, and so let's define this. It means characterized by or suggesting the practice of severe self-discipline and abstention from all forms of indulgence and typically for religious reasons. Historically, you would think about people like monks if you were thinking about ascetic worship. Um, Some of you are wondering, how is this worship? There's a word in the Bible um, that is used to describe God. And that same word is used to describe what followers of God ought to be. And that word is holy. I was meditating on this this week. What does it mean to be holy? God is holy. His people are, we're called to be holy. And to be holy is to be set apart for God's use. And so anything described as holy in the Bible, it was never mixed, not to be mixed with other things. God's people were not to intermarry and intermingle with foreign people and worship idols. Instruments of worship in the temple were not used like everyday tools and utensils. They were set apart for worship in God's house. And the reason I mention that is that's a picture for us. God is glorified when his people abstain from worldly influences, when we pull away from worldly pleasures and prioritize his presence. More than any of the worship expressions I've talked about, five last week, four of them this week, ascetic worshipers go against the culture and their love for Jesus. Looking into the Bible, I was always kind of fascinated by this group whenever the Bible talked about them, but they were called Nazarites. Uh, Nazarites. And one of your favorite characters from one of your favorite Bible stories, Samson. Samson took a Nazarite vow. Now, the Nazarites were not a group of people from a particular culture or city. They were represented by a group who had taken vows for a set period of time. And during this period of time, they would abstain from alcohol. They would refrain from cutting their hair. They would stay away from contact with dead bodies, which I think makes sense. I think we should all stay away from dead people. Um, But to the outside world, the Nazarites were a picture of holiness. They were set apart for a special purpose. I think about John the Baptist. He, he, he's actually a really good example of an ascetic worshiper, um, somebody who went completely against the culture. 
The Bible describes this, uh, this, like, this frugal, fasting, strict, severe, reclusive kind of person who wore animal skins and lived in the wilderness and ate locusts and wild honey. Really weird. And sometimes we even find these Christians that are very peculiar, and we kind of look at them, and the outside world goes, <laughs> you're weird. But it was pain with a purpose for John the Baptist. John the Baptist loved God so much that he separated himself fully so that he could fully prioritize his mission of leading people to repent and to turn to God. Uh, even Jesus practiced kind of ascetic tendencies, uh, detachment from society. Before he launched himself into public ministry, he spent 40 days in solitude and fasting, and then he returned to solitude at difficult moments in his ministry. Uh, the book of Mark, as well as Matthew, talks about Jesus seeking out solitude. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, early in the morning, while it was dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I don't know if anybody does that, gets up at 4.30 a.m., goes and spends time in a prayer room with God. Uh, are you an ascetic worshiper? If you're naturally more introverted... And alone time is nourishing to you, you may have ascetic tendencies. Uh, if you can stay home for two or three days without talking to anyone, um, without TV, without music, and just love life, that silence, that simplicity of life, come on, give it a go. This might be for you. If there's a part of you that resists everything that you see and hear in the world, the politics, the partying, the pursuit of fame and fortune, Again, you might have tendencies this way. Now, to clarify, it's not just that ascetic worshipers are loners, you know, and they prefer things simple and quiet, but there's a conviction there as well that all the hype and all the activity that we find in the culture, it's not good for us. It's not helpful. It's not healthy. Um, to share personally with you, I don't think I'm an ascetic worshiper. I think that all of us, you know, probably should demonstrate some of these qualities with every one of the expressions. I told you last week I'm a highly sensory worshiper. This would, ascetic worshipers would hate that. But where I do have these tendencies is in my use of media. I resist and I prefer to live in detachment from a lot of television, internet, social media. I have zero social media on my phone. I don't even have an app store on my phone. I don't like it. I love, I'm a bit of a hermit when it comes to social media, and I'm guarded against almost anything that uh, I see on TV. I watch like two shows. <laughs> and it's not that it's all bad. Some of it is neutral, and it's even good. It's just that I find it distracting. I don't find that it's good for me. There are many followers of Jesus who do way more than that. So again, historically, ascetic worshipers would leave the city. They would live in a monastery. Some would embrace poverty as a means of rejecting wealth and worldly treasures. There were people who would take vows of celibacy, never to get married. It was recognized that without self-denial, sins of the flesh would make it impossible to focus on God. Now, that's extreme. <laughs> That's extreme. But the goal was not to be religiously fanatic. It was to reserve a major portion of their life in the passionate pursuit of God. Now, that's admirable. That's amazing. And so I would ask you, what things distract you? 
more. There's an excessive focus. There's even an indulgence, cars, clothing, music, media, relationships even, things that are getting in the way of being holy and set apart for God. Is there an area where you need to actually take this on in your worship and there needs to be a detachment from the things of this world? All of us, no matter of our worship expression or preference, we can learn a lot from ascetic worshipers. Um, thirdly, this morning, we're going to get a little bit more practical, a little bit more activity-driven right now. I can think of so many people in our church that embody this next one, and that is caregiver worship. Caregiver worship. And that is loving God by loving other people. I'll remind you again, worship doesn't only have to do with who you are before the Lord. Um, it's glorifying to God. It's honoring to Him when you are good to people, when you are loving to other people. When Jesus was asked what the most important law was, he said, love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's amazing how he paired those things together. Looking into the Bible, uh, there's this guy named Mordecai in the Old Testament, and he's a good example of a caregiver. Mordecai is found in the book of Esther, and he, he raised Esther when she became an orphan, this little girl, and he protected the king when there was a plot to assassinate him. He protected the Israelite people when there was a plan to destroy them. He established festivals where people would celebrate God's goodness by giving to the poor. Jesus, I mean, Jesus is every single one of these worship expressions that we've talked about these two weeks, uh, but he shines in being a caregiver. He cared for the sick, those who were oppressed, those who were lost. He urged his followers to give to the poor. Uh, how many scriptures have you read in the New Testament where it says, and Jesus had great compassion on the multitudes that came to see him? Jesus is by far the most responsible among re religious leaders for associating love for God with love for people. The spread of Christianity is the main reason that non-believers assume that Christianity and caring for people go hand in hand. There are many scriptures Honestly, too many to mention. Again, Jesus had compassion on crowds of people. He healed those who were sick. Uh, think about um, Matthew 14, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus, who had a body like us, was tired, but he continued to give, to heal, to teach. First uh, John chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, we have passed from death to life because we love one another. In fact, love for others calls into question, if we, or lack of love for others calls into question whether we love God. Verse 17, 1 John chapter 3, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Paul joins John in urging Christians to look after others in Philippians 2 verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests but look to the interests of others. Hebrews 6, 11, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown, to, shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. I just want to celebrate people in our church. I just want to celebrate the Father's house. Some of you, uh, I think of the Rosendals, the Barretts, and the Chambers, who for years and years have been involved in foster care. I think of uh, Shannon Knowles and Loyola Hansen and 
Pastor Betty, and others who work with seniors and love seniors. It's, a, it's an act of caregiving, and an, it's an act of worship in doing that. I think of the Rosa Chucks and uh, Genesis Flores and others who serve at Jesse's house, helping women and families who are victims of domestic violence. I think of Ray and Margot, Kirkpatrick, visiting prisoners in jail, ministering to people who are struggling with addiction. Uh, I think of Liz Melvin, a former pastor of this church, now the executive director of Sturgeon Victims Services. I think of Pastor Maddie Coppin working alongside her with Sturgeon Victim Services and the RCMP. Pastor Rick, our Higher Grounds Cafe manager, serving people with free meals at our cafe on Main Street. I love what's happening at the newly opened Fusion Thrift Shop here in Morinville, Jocelyn Hansen, Kathy Sandmeyer, not to make a whole bunch of money, but to serve people in need of clothes and household goods. How about the Five Loaves Ministry? You wait until you go into that fellowship hall after the service. They're, they're bringing in more stuff while we're in here worshiping. There's this vision to see people, you know, eating healthy, nutritious food and lowering the cost of groceries, which seem to be getting so expensive. You may be a caregiver if your love for God is unleashed when you're serving and when you're helping other people. And what a powerful expression of worship that is. Amen? Yeah. All right, my last point for today is kind of related to the caregiver expression. This is number nine, the ninth expression we've talked about between last week and this week. Um, and I'm going to warn you, this one's a little intense. You ready for this? This one's a little crazy. Um, Last but not least is activist worship, loving God through confrontation. Whoa. Some of you who are peacemakers and maybe afraid to rock the boat a bit, you're like, confrontation is an expression of worship? <laughs> what? Um, church confronting evil, standing for justice and righteousness pleases the Lord. It pleases God. I shared a story about a year ago when I was speaking of a time where I attended a pro-life event, and it was awesome. It was peaceful, it was respectful, but it was amazing to see the boldness of some of the believers who wanted to cross the street and have a dialogue with people on the other side, not belligerently, not, you know, rudely, but just like seeking to understand, but also firmly standing for a position on life. Um, to help us gain more perspective, let's look at Scripture. Uh, Moses. Moses in the Old Testament is a classic activist. Um, although he started as kind of a misguided one, sometimes there's a lot of immaturity that begins with activist worshipers. Moses started by killing someone. <laughs> he killed an Egyptian while defending a fellow Israelite. Not a great strategy for activism. Um, but he would need that zeal. He would need that energy. It takes time for the fire and the zeal generated by activists to be tempered and seasoned by maturity. Shortly after killing the Egyptian, Moses runs away, and he rescues a group of young women who are being pushed around by some unruly shepherds. Whenever we see Moses, he's embroiled in conflict. 
I don't know if you know some Christians and stuff, they seem to be always embroiled in confrontation in the outside culture. Uh, it's somewhat of a surprise then that later in life, Moses had to overcome fearful reluctance. And that happens too, that you vacillate between intensity and fear. Moses was classic in this way. He seemed gun-shy for a while, as if his earlier experiences shook his confidence and kept him from wanting to step forward. But once he got moving, man, there was no stopping Moses. Uh, think about his confrontation with Pharaoh. Moses didn't have the benefit of knowing that there would be 10 plagues. All he knew is that God would bring him before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Let my people go. The Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. And what's crazy is that when he first obeyed, the situation got worse. Pharaoh put a greater burden on the Israelite people, and Moses became the most hated man in the nation. Some people are not comfortable with that, but sometimes things get worse before they get better when you're an activist. And after great perseverance, Moses finally saw Israel go free, and it wasn't long, however, before he adopted the I'm the only one who can do it complex, and he began wearing himself out on good causes. Again, that's another activist tendency, is they tend to think, I'm the only one who can do it. Fortunately, Moses also had a teachable heart, and by listening to his father-in-law Jethro, he avoided the nervous exhaustion that is common among activists. What I want you to understand about this final expression is activists are spiritually nourished through battle. Very few personality types are nourished through confrontation. Some are. Um, it's not such a bad thing because in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, my nourishment is to do the will of God who sent me and to finish his work. Think about Jesus. Much of his ministry included intense confrontation with the religious leaders. And in defense of their work, activists will often cite Jesus cleansing the temple. Think about Jesus flipping tables. My house will be called a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of thieves. Jesus did more than heal, activists say. He confronted, he was strong, he was determined. When activists live to see justice and righteousness worked out, that is where it becomes worship. It, they do it as a way of loving God, and the confrontation will actually bring fulfillment. And so, are you an activist? Uh, if you're passionate about social reform, you might have some tendencies. There are Christians leading the way in fighting abortion, uh, sex trafficking, euthanasia, and other things. There are followers of Jesus fighting against bullying or maybe to ensure that seniors are not neglected and are well taken care of. There are followers of Jesus fighting to protect education in our province right now, upholding religious freedoms and expressions in schools and advocating for parental choice and involvement. Now again, the goal is not to be belligerent. If you're a belligerent activist, that's not worship. That's actually just pride. That's selfish. But when we do activism because we love God and we love people and you're a protector and you're loyal, that, that, that's, that's glorifying. True activist worship is fueled by righteous anger and their activities result in protecting others and safeguarding truth. And so if you resonate with that, you may have activist tendencies. Um, and I really mean it when I say I thank God for you, because when stuff starts going down in our world, there are very few that run to the front line and say, we're going to try to protect people.
and love people. Most of us turn around and go, oh, that's intense. I'm just going to turn off my TV. <laughs> I'm going to turn off my social feed. I don't want anything to do with that. Um, I'm going to invite Pastor Tyler to come. We're going to close this morning. But I want to encourage you to do something, and I did it at the beginning of my message as well. If you're only here for second part, which would be this Sunday, you need to go back online to tfhchurch.ca forward slash watch and take the first message that I preached in uh, worship expressions because I talked about five and this morning I'm talking about four. Church, there's a lot of division and disunity in the church today and it has to do with Christians who completely misunderstand other Christians totally misunderstand the ways that they naturally express their love for God. The way that we worship the Lord is so diverse. It involves various emotions, passions, environments. It can be done individually, corporately, very practically. But the point in all of it is unity and that God would receive the glory. Amen? That's it. And in closing this morning, a verse that came to mind was from John 17. And in this passage, we find Jesus praying to his heavenly Father for his disciples and praying for you and for me. And he says this, I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Can we just pray for unity in the body of Christ? Can we just pray for just a mutual honoring and a mutual submission and love across different denominations, even Christians within our church? Why don't we stand together? And we're going to pray. And we're going to worship the Lord. Amen? Well, God, we just thank you for this series on rediscovering worship. Lord, I pray that you would just fill your church overflowing with your power and with your presence. God, I pray that people's love for you would be unleashed, released in the most significant way, God, as they identify with different expressions. And God, I pray for such a mutual love and an honor that would take place, God, in the body of Christ all over the world, God, as we understand each other's differences. Lord, that we would not major on the minors, but we would major on the majors. We would, our love for you, Jesus, our commitment to you. God, we thank you that you are worthy of our attention, our respect, our effort in worship. And so today we give you all the glory and all the praise. Let's close with a final song together.